to round out James today, we will see a reminder to care for those who are going astray, and we are reminded of God's care for us, and so as we seek to have patience, and as we also seek to care for each other, Psalm 23 and then Psalm 119v both both have themes associated with the care of sheep, 119v with lost sheep, and Psalm 23 with sheep who are in the midst of trouble. Uh, Psalm 23, Robert Godfrey in his uh, Learning to Love the Psalms, he has an excellent insight that Psalm 22 is a remarkable prophecy of the crucifixion. Psalm 24 is obviously an ascension psalm, talking about Christ entering into his heavenly throne and palace. And so we, we see those around Psalm 23, and Psalm 23 is the resurrection psalm. It talks about being in the valley of death and yet being cared for. And so we have Christ not being left to corruption. And so that sort of that line, we see that progress from crucifixion to the death and then the resurrection of Christ, and then we have the ascension of Christ there laid out in those three psalms. So as we sing Psalm 23, keep these various themes in mind. And let's read the text now so we can sing with understanding. The Psalm of David. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And He restores my soul again. He leads the way I'll go along the paths of righteousness, all for His own name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely I will fear no evil, for you are there with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me, and you prepare for me a table there in the presence of all my enemies. Lord, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all my days, and I will dwell forevermore in the house of the Lord. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me to lie down. In the green pastures He leads me beside the still waters. And He restores my soul again. He leads the way I'll go along the paths of righteousness, all for His own name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely I will fear no evil, for You are there with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me, and you prepare for me a table there in the presence of all my enemies. Lord, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all my days, and I will dwell forevermore in the house of the Lord. All right, please remain standing for a moment longer. We read God's Word out of the book of James. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. Starts on page 5 on the handout. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. It continues on to page 6 there. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, We count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into hypocrisy. Go to page 9. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death, and cover a multitude of sins. You may be seated. Alright, so, titled this Trial, Fortitude, Prayer, and Faith, you'll notice that um, we also have at the beginning here the uh, first section of the chiasm from the very beginning, which is the thesis of the book, and we have then the counterpart, A prime, which is the last part of the book. So we went through the beginning of the book and we saw the various sections, but I didn't compare them side by side with the second chiastic counterpart, the complement. And so as we look now, we will see the complements lined up um, as we look at this last section. Uh, the book itself 
remember, centers around this idea of a dead profession of faith. And there is the idea of the valuable double witness of a profession that has works. Right? So good works and a confession of faith. So you profess the true religion and you have works that also witness to the truth of your profession. We, going out from the center, saw the dangers of hypocritical behaviors, partiality and judgment, and we saw also division that was caused by unruly speech. And so the hypocrisy of a person professing to believe or a person professing to have wisdom. And so we got into the ring that's out from that, and we saw the idea of a credible profession versus a vain profession. And we also looked at the idea of the types of wisdom, the, the wisdom that's godly or the wisdom that's worldly. So it was a confession of having faith at all or a confession of being mature. Those were the counterparts in D. We looked at C. There was lust and anger contrasted with the gifts of God. And we saw that in C prime, lusts and fighting versus the grace of God. And so those dangers of of fighting in the church and the danger of having evil desires and having fights. B, we looked at the idea of those who are poor and those who are rich and how they're dealt with, the lowly and the ones who are exalted, and how God provides a basis for humility for the rich, and he provides a basis of exaltation for the poor. And so we look at those things and remember that we need to deal with each other without partiality, to deal with each other as Christians based upon a credible profession and based upon the good works that are done or evil works that are done. And so there's this impartiality of behavior. And we're reminded, how do we have that? We have that by the ability to have endurance, by having fortitude, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we're back in comparing those things. And so what I want to do is to remind you of the thesis now. Let's go to that in page two. And we'll compare it to the ending text. So James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Hey, remember, the twelve tribes, those are the Jews, they're scattered abroad, and the idea is that there are Jews that are all over the world, they've been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, 10% of the Roman Empire at least seems to have been Jewish by this time, either by birth or conversion, and so you have a dramatic, large portion of the empire being Jews. There's a, an additional group that would be God-fearers that had not necessarily been covenanted or circumcised. And so you have this large group of persons that are scattered throughout the Roman world. The result of that was that there was an enormous amount of wealth pouring into Jerusalem throughout the empire. You had tithes that would go back to the temple, and they would be stored there. And so that was a great target once the empire further corrupted. There was this desire across time to take money out of the temple Uh, And that was a part of also what occurred in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem with the great amount of gold that was present. When the temple was burnt, there was a great deal of gold that was melted, which is one of the reasons why the Romans tore it down brick by brick to get the gold out from between the bricks of the temple. So Christ's uh, fulfillment of the prophecy that not one stone would be on top of the other there was motivated in part by the melting of that gold. So this, this... dispersion of the tribes there this made it so there was sort of a highway for evangelism when the apostles went out 
they were able to go to the synagogues to preach, and you had a bunch of believers in those because that was the Old Covenant Church. And in the Old Covenant Church, many believers were persuaded as soon as they heard that Christ is, in fact, Jesus Christ, right? that Jesus is the Christ. So they were persuaded that he was the Messiah, but many of them rejected him. And so you have many of the churches that were formed throughout the empire being Jewish dominant, especially early on. And as they're evangelizing, you have more and more Gentiles coming in. There were some churches that were Gentile dominant, and that was a peculiarity for them. And so you seem to see that in Ephesus, and you seem to see that in Corinth, for example, where there is a sort of a, a Gentile dominance that occurs early on in those churches. In the Roman church, that also occurred because the Jews were expelled from Rome for a period of time. Gentiles were left without any Jews there, and later on the Jews come back. And so this sort of differentiation of cultures ends up clashing, which is why you have some significant focus on that in the letter to the Roman church. So James is a Jew. He's an apostle to the Jews, or he's not an apostle. He's a prophet to the Jews. He's the brother of Jesus. He's not an apostle. And he is writing, and he's talking to Jewish Christians that are scattered around. And this scattering is something that we need to be reminded is something that by itself is sort of a, a symbol of weakness. It's a symbol of a lack of power. Concentration is a principle in military operations. You concentrate force in order to accomplish goals, to go on the offensive, to do things. When you are dealing with business, you concentrate capital to accomplish a particular goal. And the fulfillment of that goal should allow for the concentration of new capital. Right? This idea of getting things done and moving on to the next thing. Scatteredness, diffusion, dissipation are associated with weakness. And so the scattering here is something that at the beginning we're told about, and the very end, the last couple of verses, is about when you see somebody scattering, gather them back. Okay, so this is to the scattered, and the idea of coming together in unity it doesn't require a physical single location. Right? The temple is about to be destroyed. This is not about everybody going back to Jerusalem. But there is a unity that allows for the church to be concentrated, and that unity is the unity of a shared confession and a shared standard of how to walk. And so that covenant uniformity is how the church becomes unified by the work of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession, for example, talks about the work of the church. It lays out for us the idea of the Catholic or universal church. It talks about the invisible church, the visible church. And it talks about how there is a giving to the church of tools for the purpose of gathering and perfecting the saints. So, look at point three of that. We looked at this not too long ago, so I'm not going to go through the whole of it, but I want to remind you of this. Point three, so chapter 25, point three, in the middle of page two. Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. I would encourage you to underline gathering and perfecting. Under this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does, by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. This is one of the emphases of the book of James at the end here. We have this list at the end of chapter 5 of a bunch of God-ordained means. Prayer, psalm singing, the laying on of hands and anointing for prayer, uh, 
we're, we're encouraged to think about those things. Those are ordinances that are given to us. And those ordinances, when done in faith, with prayer for the blessing of the Holy Spirit, are effectual for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life. So there is a work of concentration. The king is gathering his troops. He is calling units together under his banner. He is organizing under officers. He has ordinances for training and discipline. And he has a weaponry that is effective for a spiritual warfare. And so that work of causing the scattered to become gathered is a work of the church by the ordinances appointed by Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those things are made effectual. We go to page 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And remember, hypomeno is the stand under. And so that's the idea of like endurance or fortitude. And so this faith produces fortitude. It, it, we're going to be told at the end of the book to be established, to establish our own hearts. You don't have the power in yourself to actually establish your own heart. The establishing of your own heart is done by the Holy Spirit, but yet we're commanded to do it which means we're commanded to use the ordinances and rely on the Holy Spirit to do it. And so we establish our hearts by seeking to see our faith strengthened. That's been a theme throughout James. The idea that you don't want to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. How do you avoid being blown about by every wind of doctrine? Well, you seek to have a foundation that's more stable than water. We don't want to be like Reuben. You are as unstable as water what his father told him. We do not want that. We want to be on a stable foundation. The word of God. Jesus Christ. And so that stability of the word of God in our hearts allows us to have stable thoughts. To not be blown about. So we are to count it joy when we have trials because the trials are used by God for the purpose of testing our faith. And the testing of our faith produces Fortitude, endurance, stability. But let fortitude, patience, stability have its perfect work, its complete work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the Word of God is sufficient for every good work. It is the thing that we need to be complete, to be thoroughly equipped, to be thoroughly furnished. And so we look to the Word when we have problems we can't overcome. If you have faith, when you have trials, what God causes your faith to do is to look for more understanding. You go, this is rough. I don't know. I don't know what to do here. This is rough. I don't have a solution right now. I don't think I have enough strength right now. I don't have the resources. And so what he does is he causes you to look, to search, to seek, to get more. And so you grow in faith as you're looking through the Word of God and you start to apply the ordinances of God more and you start to see those put to use. Right? If a soldier on the battlefield has training and then he starts to use his training but he feels like there's too strong of an opponent, he can give up and say, my training's worthless. Or he can say, my training is good. I need to be better at it. I need to train more. I need to try harder. I need to pull together other people. I need to work together with those. One rifle's not enough. They need more rifles. Right, there's never enough rifles and there's never enough cameras. Right? Ask photographers and ask riflemen. So, this need to get more of the ordinances put to use. 
that is what we're pushed to do. We start to replace frivolous use of time with useful use of time. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So we need to fight double-mindedness. We need to be stable in our faith. And we need to pray for that. And do you see the the hopeless loop that that might create? You go, I'm unstable because I don't have wisdom. I should pray for wisdom. But my prayer is not going to be heard unless I'm stable. And so, this is not a sinless perfection requirement on your part. Your prayers are heard by the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfectly faithful, and who believed every point that was revealed to him, and who very quickly picked up the implications. And so we pray by the mediation of Christ. We rely upon the Holy Spirit. We give this prayer of faith for wisdom. The faith that we already have prays for more faith. And so this is the use of this ordinance of prayer. Page 5. So, we get into the counterpart, the complement. A prime. This is the text for the day. That was the thesis of the book, and it was also the first section that compares with this. And so we, we see there, we have the same themes. We have Trials, fortitude, prayer of faith, (coughs) exhortation to gather and keep, to guard as a sign of genuine wisdom. That one is more hidden in the beginning, right? Because it's James saying he's talking to the scattered people. And as he's talking to them, he's seeking to unify them, right? He's, He's seeking to unify them in faith. Interesting text in Hebrews that we just read today, providentially. And the majority text talking about being united together by faith. It's not the mixing of the faith and the individual that the text was talking about. It was about the unity of the brotherhood with faith. And so that is the work here that's occurring in James. So James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. This word patient is not the have fortitude. This is the go through much suffering. Right, the go through much suffering. Sort of like, get out there and suffer a lot. That's the exhortation. Now the point isn't that he's saying find ways to suffer. The point is he's saying suffering is unavoidable in this life. You're going to suffer. So live long. Do useful things. Make lots of enemies. Let them cause you all sorts of trouble. And then just keep doing it. Be much suffering, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now this coming of the Lord, we, we hear coming of the Lord and you, you probably have one of two biases. You either, every time you see coming of the Lord, think about the day of judgment when Christ is going to return after the resurrection of the dead. With the resurrection of the dead. Or you think about 70 AD with Jesus coming and destroying the temple. Okay, so it's possible we can look at the text. It's possible this is referring to 70 AD. But I don't think it is. And I also don't think it's talking about the coming in judgment at the end of history. I think that this is talking about, spoiler, this is talking about 
general providential judgment. Christ is quick to come in general providential judgment. He brings judgments. He brings blessing and cursing all the time. Just consistently doing it. So therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Go to page 6 and we'll read the context. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, much suffering. Establish your hearts, there's the fortitude, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, at hand, nearby. This is not talking about the judgment at the end of history. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is the same sort of language you see in the book of Revelation. That that language is referring to the 70 AD judgment. But you also see in the book of Revelation, like Revelation 2.5, where it talks about the church at Ephesus that has to worry about the judgment of Christ coming to remove their lampstand. That didn't happen in 70 AD. He came in judgment on the church at Ephesus. That probably happened more than a century after that. You have evidence of an ongoing church before it falls into significant idolatry or apostasy going out for some time. But eventually, that happened. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, verse 10, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. And that patience there, sorry, I don't have this in the notes, but that patience there is uh, the hypomene, the uh, standing under the endurance. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. All right. So the examples that were laid out there, right? Farmers don't have to wait until they're dead to get a crop. The, this is a literal example, and I get that there's a spiritual application. Okay, the, the farmers wait for the later, the early and latter rain, and they get a crop. But that literally happens, right? I mean, like this literally happens. They get rain; it's physical, literal rain, and then they get physical, literal crops, and that's a blessing from God, isn't it? Okay, then also we can apply that spiritually to the whole of life, and we can apply it to other things that aren't literally crops and literally rain. We can look at what happens with the prophets, we can look at Job. Look at Job's life. Job received a reward at his death, for sure. But do you remember the end of the book where he doubles the amount of possessions that he has, and even though all of his children died, he has just as many children again after? So he's doubled his children because the other three are going to be with him in heaven. Right. So you have this idea of the doubling of things. He gets that in this life. That's a providential judgment. And so, the coming of the Lord is used in multiple ways. Go back to page 5. The coming of the Lord is used in multiple ways throughout the Scriptures. We could have Pentecost, where it comes to indwell and empower the church corporately. We can have the indwelling and empowering of individuals. Or we're told that he doesn't leave us orphans, but he comes to us. We can have C, the appearing to communicate to an individual physically or in a vision. Or we're told by Paul that he's the last one to get that. But Acts 23.11 has an example of that occurring where Jesus physically stood by him. Physically stood by him. It wasn't just a, a, a vision. It was him physically standing by Paul. 
And then we have the providential judgments throughout history. Revelation 2.5 gives us an example of that on a church. Isaiah 19.1 gives an example of that on nations. And Jerusalem in 70 AD is a particular example of providential judgments. Okay, it's a particular example. So my understanding is, even if... So I don't think James is talking about 70 AD here. If he is, that's fine. The application remains the same. The point is that Jesus Christ comes in providential judgments. You should be patient in your life, knowing that he's going to bring blessing or cursing in judgments throughout your life and throughout history. And so wait for him. Wait for him patiently. So we get to all the other examples on page 6. We're told to wait like a farmer. There's the early rain, a sort of early elements of nourishment, and the latter elements of the nourishment. And that early and latter rain is, is used in lots of ways in Scripture. We have it being interpreted in terms of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We have it exemplified to literally talk about you know, how crops grow. We have it used to deal with farmers in general. And so this idea that what I think James is doing here is he's taking the idea of the early and latter rain and he's saying this, be like a farmer and be patient. You go through, you're waiting for something, you're waiting for a reward. God will give you strength in the beginning of that effort, the early rain. He will give you fortitude. And then, as there's a closeness, he gives strength to be able to complete the work, the latter rain. And that results in the fruit of the Spirit. And so this bearing of fruit. Now there's also the bearing of rewards in time. But that is a great reward. It's a great blessing to have a growth of fruit of the Spirit. The prophet. We're to wait like prophets. We undergo suffering. So you're not just waiting for some reward and you're waiting with anticipation. But like the prophets, you might be suffering and showing endurance under suffering. That's the example for the prophets. And we're reminded that the prophets, that the prophets, they receive great reward. And we should count those who endure blessed. In fact, we do. Right? This idea that you look back and you look at those who did endure and you say, that's a great blessing that they endured. And we know that there's a reward. Even if you see them get killed in this life, you know that there's a greater reward. So you either get rewards in this life or you get those not happening here, in which case you get a really good return. You're going to get paid 30, 60, 100 times. So there's the reward in this life, but there's also the you get paid back a hundredfold when God takes something from you in this life. So it's great to get rewards in this life, and it's way better to get rewards in the next. So we go from the example of the prophets to Job, who persevered, and we have his end laid out for us. He's an explicit example of that. So you put the prophets side by side with Job. Job's a prophet, right? And so he has the example of, fine, he persevered while suffering. He's being patient under that suffering. He's showing fortitude. And there's blessing that comes to him in this life and the next. So we are to be patient, awaiting the coming of Christ to bless and curse. And the way we do that is by establishing our hearts. And some of the things, some of the truths that we remember in order to establish our hearts are 
Jesus is at the door. Jesus is coming. Those who endure are blessed. And we have exhortations to particular actions to avoid. Because if you do these things, you're kind of throwing away reward and you're bringing curse on yourself. There's a danger of groaning against each other. When you're suffering and there's this concern about the suffering that you've got, how often in your life have you been like, this bad thing's going on and all the people around me are perfectly supporting me in all of the ways that I want. All of my needs are met and everybody is showing me the appropriate level of love and care right now. Does that happen to you like every week? Is that, is, that, is that what goes on in your mind all the time? Or do you find that human beings around you are consistently disappointing and that sometimes they help in the wrong ways and sometimes when they help in the right way they do it at a bad time? Right? And so you have all of these ways in which people's shortcomings are on display. And so there's this temptation in the midst of suffering to groan or complain against each other. So we have that warning. So establish your heart, being made firm by faith in the Word of God against doubt, so that stability is available against the winds of false doctrine. And fortitude is available against suffering. Now, if you don't have Webster's 1828 dictionary, what are you doing with your life? Like, get it. Like, as soon as the Lord's Day is over, just buy it. Okay? Or you can get it free online. You can look it up. But fortitude, as defined by Webster, I want to give this to you. It's amazing. Fortitude is that strength or firmness of mind or soul which enables a person to encounter danger with coolness and courage, or to bear pain or adversity without murmuring, depression or despondency. Fortitude is the basis or source of genuine courage or intrepidity in danger, or patience in suffering, of forbearance under injuries, and of magnanimity in all conditions of life. The establishing of the heart is the seeking to have fortitude. So what is groaning that we should avoid? Groaning is complaining against each other in a disorderly way. Notice I didn't say groaning is just complaining against each other at all. We are commanded when we have complaints to go to the person who offended us. If it's a public Concern, like right now, if I preach something that's concerning, the appropriate response is for some man to stand up at the time appointed to raise a concern, objection, or question for clarification. Right? So it's appropriate to go public when the act is public. But if there's a private concern, we should complain to each other by following the Matthew 18 process and going to each other. And so we seek, to har- we seek to avoid harming reputation without just cause. And if somebody does bring a complaint to you, and you're not the one that they're complaining against, what you do is you either say, hey, maybe you know, stop it early and say, why don't you go talk to them first? But if they say, you know, they need to talk to you, and you hear it out, then it becomes your job to make sure the complainer talks to the one complained against. It's legitimate not to seek counsel. So I'm not saying it's always sin to talk to other people about an issue. But if you hear it and you realize that you can't help, then the only way you can help is by making sure that they talk to each other. Now, 
That is the difference between groaning and lawful complaining. Verse 12, page 7. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into hypocrisy. So, that above all, you know, whoa, above all, it's a big deal. Big deal. Alright, so what is this saying? This is first of all establishing for us a general rule that we also find Christ teaching. The general rule is do not take oaths. That does not mean never take an oath. Sort of like when the Bible says you shall not kill. It doesn't mean you never kill. It's the general rule and you apply the exceptions that are given to us in the more detailed commands. So, the general rule is don't take oaths. Why is that here? Because when you are exasperated, you are more inclined to rashly take oaths. How often have you heard a really calm, patient, unbothered person just spit out an oath? Whoa, where did that come from? So that idea, very carefully not in your anger or exasperation, swearing to the truth of something or swearing to do something. Do not take oaths rashly. Fear oaths. Swearing is a dreadful thing because it is by a dreadful name. We should be very careful to not take lightly the name of God. So the exceptions to when you should swear are if a lawful authority imposes an oath on you that's lawful on a lawful occasion. Lots of lawfuls. Seems like there's a lot of studying that needs to happen there. Is the oath lawful? Is this a lawful occasion? Is this a lawful authority? Those are all really good questions. And so you have to study to understand that. Now I've given to you chapter 22 of the Confession about lawful oaths and vows so it's easier for you to study that. And those proof texts are magnificent. Now, the danger to be avoided, rash oaths, oaths without a just occasion, and oaths is a common or profane thing. If you don't have a just occasion to take an oath, you are taking the Lord's name in vain, and here's how. It's not that you're lying, because you might be telling the truth. It's not that you won't keep the promise. You might swear to do a thing and then do it. It's common if every time you make a promise, you don't differentiate between times where an oath is appropriate or not. Or every time you tell the truth, you don't differentiate between when it's appropriate to tell the truth with an oath as opposed to just telling the truth. And when they become profane, when they become common, the name of God is no longer holy to you, hallowed to you, raised up as a thing to be careful about, your probability of breaking an oath increases. And the probability, therefore, of bringing great curse upon your own head increases. And shame to the name of God. So that's the reason for the general rule. And so oaths, in the particular places they belong, helps to show the weightiness of a matter. And it causes the name of God to be lifted up in the earth. All right, so 
there's an ordinance, oath-taking, and we're told how to not use it. We move into now the positive uses. Those are warnings. That's a negative warning. It's about forbearance, patience, and it has to do with dangers there. And we move into the last section, or the second to last section, forgive me. And it's the prayer of faith is sort of the uniting theme. Back up. Remember earlier on, you'll pray for wisdom with faith. And now we have the idea of praying for faith for healing. Okay, those are the things that are set by side by side. Remember, the, the word is the healing word, the hygienic word, the sound word. That's how it gets translated a lot of the times. But the healing word, the root for the word hygiene, is used whenever you see sound doctrine. That sound is, is typically healing or cleansing word. So we have this idea of we need to pray for wisdom for the healing of our souls. And also, we need to pray for healing of the body. These are both things to care about. And do you see how that also fits together with the general theme of you say you have faith, but how are you using your body? Right? The idea of faith and works, the profession of faith and the works, those also relate to praying for wisdom and praying for healing. And these things are continued themes. The idea of the mind and words and the body continues to be sort of this comparison point contrast point so verse 13 is anyone among you suffering let him pray and so you have suffering you're undergoing pain difficulties prayer is the thing to use that's been emphasized throughout the book of james and so he's giving it to us there as a reminder of that doctrine is anyone cheerful or joy joyous you might say let him sing psalms is anyone among you sick Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, we have a list of occasions, events that occur, and these are the ordinances that are to be applied at those times. Those occasions are reminders for us to apply these ordinances. Faith externalized looks like picking up these ordinances at these times. We also have verse 16, or sorry, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So, Sin has an ordinary ordinance to be used. And that ordinance is confession to the right party. You might confess to God in prayer if it's a sin against God, or if it's a sin that's against God by sinning against another person, and there's some sort of external act to be repented of toward them, like you, you know, stole their stuff or whatever. Then you go and confess it to them, you make it right, and you've also confessed it to God. And so confession of sin is an ordinance. So the occasions, suffering, joy, serious or prolonged sickness, sin, these are all occasions, and they have an ordinance tied to them. Suffering with prayer, joy with psalm singing, serious or prolonged sickness with calling the elders to come out and anoint and lay hands on and pray. We have sin, the appropriate ordinance is confession to the right party. These are acts of faith to be done as particular events or occasions arise. 
So we are shown here what to do. This is training for us. Now, these things all rely upon use that is in faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Your faith is made by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we can really just say it depends upon the power of the Holy Spirit because you can pray as a believer and not have faith as you're praying for that particular prayer and it would not be answered. You look throughout the Bible about these examples of prayer with faith or the idea of healings and the association with faith. You have all sorts of weird language that gets abused by the faith healers, right? The the Pentecostals that go out and say, I have the power to heal. Well, that power is not their power, and it's not a continuing power. It's a miraculous power, and so they don't have that. But guess what there still is? There is still supernatural hearing, healing. It's not that any one person has that power in themselves. It was a gift that was given before to individuals, and that is no longer given as a gift. It was a sign gift given to point to the revelation that was coming by prophets at that time. But what we have now is still, we are to pray for healing, and we are to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ and the atonement work that he did on the cross also dealt with the curse of death and physical harm. And we are coming into greater and greater possession of what he has accomplished there on the cross. And prayer with faith is one of the means to overcome harm to the body. Now, one of the promises we see in Isaiah is that as the gospel increases in its filling of the earth and the church more and more grows, it's said that he who dies at a hundred will be considered a child. Right? That, that idea that more and more the gospel goes out and the curse of sickness and the decay from old age declines. And you see man more and more being renewed in strength and power. And so... This is one of the means. The growth in our ability to care for the body, to provide food without breaking your back. Right? The, the reduction in toil and thorns and the increase of medical care and the lifespans have increased by 100% in about a century. The average person right now lives so much longer. You think about that work of dominion and the extension out of the gospel. This is one of the means. And sadly, this is actually one of the means that Reformed churches have typically dropped. Calvin and a number of other sound teachers say that the anointing with oil and the laying on of hands was associated with the gift of healing and should not be continued. I don't see any basis for that. I don't see any basis for that. This is not saying that This is based upon the gift of healing. It's not saying it's a prophet or an evangelist or an apostle. It says elders. It's an office that's continuing. This is a command or ordinance associated with a particular office, and that office continues. And so there is no basis to say that this is a ceased supernatural gift. This is not a gift of healing. This is elders are called to use the ordinance of anointing, laying on of hands, and prayer. And those, when united with faith, are used for healing. And faith comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if that healing comes, and if that gift of faith comes, it's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not one of those gifts having ceased. It is not the gift of healing itself. 
Now, we're told, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's this idea of a blessing of healing to you as well, right? As you grow in faith, as you forgive people, and as you confess to people, and as you pray for people, there's this healing that occurs. Sanctification is a type of healing. And there's a healing of the body that's related to that. This growth of faith that occurs as you apply what God commands. That's the ordinary way that God grows faith, is by using his ordinances to cause you to increase in believing what he has revealed. And so we're told the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's not a word fervent there. It's really just effective or effectual or working. So it's the, the, the effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. And a, a prayer that's effectual is a, is a prayer that's by faith. It doesn't mean no matter what you believe, the, faith will be, the, the prayer will be effective. Faith is believing what God has revealed. Right? So if you believe what God has revealed and then pray for what God has revealed, then you can rely upon that prayer to be effective. That prayer is going to be one that was empowered by the Holy Spirit and will be used by the Holy Spirit to effectually bring about the result. So the effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we're given the example of Elijah. And you all go, well, yeah, Elijah. That was Elijah. What does the text do? The text says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's intentionally reminding us of our unity of essence with Elijah. It's not that Elijah had some like power in him, right? It wasn't that he was a demigod. There was nothing in his nature that made it so that his prayer was more effectual. It was the Holy Spirit giving him faith. And so we are reminded of the work of Elijah, and we are reminded of it to say Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was sinful and he was finite. He wasn't just not God, he was also sinful. And so his righteousness is the same sort of righteousness we have. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. So Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. He prayed for a curse on his enemies. And guess what? That curse alighted. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So there he prayed for blessing, and the blessing came. There is a power to prayer. We look upon our prayers lightly. I don't know about you, but occasionally I find myself struggling as I'm praying and feeling like this is not going to be answered. This is bouncing off the ceiling. When you have that thought, argue with yourself. Remind yourself why that's stupid. Remind yourself of the necessity of God, how it is impossible for us to have being without being upheld by Him. That we are not eternal, we did not make ourselves. Remind yourselves of the need for truth and the unavoidability of the knowledge of the truth. That it must be the case that some things are true eternally. Truth did not begin with you and it will not end with you. You remind yourself of those things and argue with yourself about God, and you argue with yourself about the fact that Christ actually paid for your sins, and that you've been commanded to pray for these things. And you pray again, and you remember that they are not bouncing off the ceiling, those petitions. 
And you remember that the prayer of faith is a prayer that will be answered. Now, page 10. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, Rome interprets this to say that when you turn somebody back, you're saving your own self. So, um, it's, it's not in universally in all their stuff, but you find that in some of the commentaries put out by Romanists. And that's plainly silly. I mean, it's what's being talked about here is the person who's being helped. Uh, that's an effort to reemphasize the interpretation of James that they have. But the idea here is there's a great value. There's an immortal soul on the line. And when you help them to turn back, you're helping their immortal soul to not suffer curse, to not suffer hell. If they don't have faith and then they're brought to faith, So, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It is the duty of pastors to turn people back as under-shepherds when they are going straight. It is. It is the duty of pastors. It's the duty of elders to do that. But it is also the duty of every Christian It is also the duty of every Christian. We see Paul take in 1 Corinthians the passage that says, don't muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Paul takes that and he says, now brothers, do you think this was written about oxen? Or do you think that this is more important to apply to men? He says, plainly, it's more important to apply to men. So then he talks about those who preach the gospel living by the gospel. Let me ask you this. Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at this. What does this text say? You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You could also translate that as ignoring that. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so shall you do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You must not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely... Help him lift them up again. Whether you see somebody going lost without anybody around to help, or whether you see somebody going lost and there is somebody else working on it, your duty is to join in. Your duty is to join in. Does this apply, beloved, to oxen and sheep and donkeys and garments and car keys, iPhones? Absolutely. Does it apply all the more to immortal souls? The Lord Jesus Christ takes that and in 
Luke 15, and also you'll find this same thing in Matthew 10, Matthew 18. Okay? So Jesus apparently liked this analogy. Luke 15, verses 1 to 7. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It is a horrifying thing for a churchman to come under the ban of the church, to have excommunication called down, to have Satan called to cause the chastening of the flesh, that the soul might be saved. How much better to warn people before that The last part of the verse talks about covering a multitude of sins. If you turn somebody back, there's also a tendency there. The person who has the wisdom, right? Proverbs talks about how he who wins souls is wise. If you have wisdom, that will be manifest in helping to turn people back from sin. And it will also be manifest in you will overlook a lot of offenses as you do the work of trying to help people. The type of person that can overlook a lot of sin and cover a multitude of offenses, that loves somebody right while they're being punched in the face and you try to rescue them, or the kind of person that's able to take somebody who's drowning and deal with the fact that that person's basically trying to drown them back as you save them, or you take them and you pull them out of the pool. That work requires a lot of forbearance. It results in a great reward. Seek wisdom. Wisdom will give you power to be stable and it will give you power to pray well, and it will give you power to win souls. Wisdom is the principal thing. Book of, the book of James is the wisdom book of the New Testament. It has so many allusions to the teachings of Jesus, to Proverbs, to the texts that point us to this idea of the wise life. That's the purpose of the book. Get wisdom. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights.